Tonight, part two of the tragic story of the Donner Party. Welcome to Narratives at Night, where every month this year, we'll lift the rope and swim out to the deep end of the pool. I'm Mike Reagan, your host, and here is tonight's show. The Donner Party now numbering its full complement of 23 wagons and 87 people, had been running into delays almost from the time it had left Fort Bridger. Thirteen-year-old Eddie Breen broke his leg in a fall from a horse and needed tending. That took time. Then, at the head of Weber Canyon, the party found a forked stick with a note stuck on it, instructing any that followed to send a messenger forward to Hastings who would come back and personally direct them to a better route. So the party went into camp, and Reed and two others rode ahead to find Hastings. Five days the party waited, while supplies dwindled and the season grew shorter. When Reed returned, he was alone. The other men's horses, he said, had broken down. Hastings had decided he must stay with the Harlan Young party. But from the top of a rise, he had pointed Reed a new path between the hazy peaks of the Wasatch. Crossing the 40 miles to the valley of the Great Salt Lake took the Donner Party 15 days of almost unimaginable labor. Of pushing aside boulders, hacking through trees and underbrush, bridging swamps and rivers, backtracking out of blind canyons, and dragging the wagons up one ridge after another. The road they cut was a good one, a godsend to the Mormons who poured over it a year later. But for their contribution, the men and women of the Donner Party paid dearly in time and energy. The ordeal was taking its toll. Cumulative fatigue and a growing sense of the danger they faced was beginning to drive them apart. Reed was blamed for the bad trail, another man for not doing his share. Some, no doubt, blamed the consumptive waif named Halloran for eating but being too weak to work. But Halloran died, his head on Tamsin's lap, and was buried near the trail. The party went ahead as best it could and reached the oasis east of the Salt Desert at the beginning of September. Another note from Hastings. They should load up with all the grass and water they could carry, for the desert, instead of taking only one day to cross, would take two days and two nights. The crossing took them six days and most of six nights, and it strained still further the sorry fabric of their morale. A few drove their teams hard, hoping to shorten the journey. Others went slowly, hoping to spare the animals, and so ensure they got across. 
Reed and the Donners fell far behind. Their progress slowed by their fine wagons, so grandly laden with the comforts of home. Eventually, they left the wagons and set off on foot, Reed carrying his three-year-old Tommy on his shoulders. Everyone made it to the spring at the foot of Pilot Peak. No one died. But they had lost precious days in the crossing, and now they spent more days recuperating, searching for lost and dying cattle, and bringing up their wagons. Few of them had come through without some loss. A number, finding their herds reduced, set about lightening their loads. Reed, who had lost most of his cattle, had to abandon two of his opulent wagons and divide his gourmet delicacies among his companions. Louis Kiesberg left a wagon behind, and so did Jacob Donner, who had exchanged his solid prairie home and his wealth of Illinois land for wagons and teams and cash in hand. But one team was gone now. He had no choice. No matter how painful the decision, a wagon simply had to be left behind. When they moved on again, September was almost half gone, and they were at least a month away from the Sierra. But they had to keep going. They were too far along to turn back. It would have meant the desert again. Ahead, if they were lucky, the mountain passes might still be open. Yet, already, the fall chill was in the air. And one day, as they pushed on toward the Humboldt, the people of the Donner Party encountered a little desert snowstorm. Meanwhile, beginning to fear that their food supplies would run out before they even got to the mountains, they sent two men ahead on horseback to appeal to Captain Sutter for provisions. One was young Charles Stanton, a bachelor. The other, a family man, William McCutcheon, who left behind a wife and a child. The rest pressed on and reached the main Humboldt River Trail on September 30th. Hoping to make better use of the sparse grass, the company had split into two sections and spread out traveling a mile or so apart. The Donners led one group, Reed the other. Everyone was on edge now. The most trifling matters sent men flying into senseless rages. It was an experience common to all parties on this last stretch of the trail, when the novelty of the trip had long since worn off and everyone was travel-weary. But the toll was seldom as grievous as it now became for the Donner Party. Shortly after striking the main trail, Reed jumped into a quarrel between two Teamsters and ended by killing one of them with a knife. Banished from the company, some had wanted him hanged, Reed rode off toward the mountains, leaving his wife and children in the care of his friends. A short time later, the old cutler Hardcoop fell behind and never caught up, and the men with horses refused to wear out their mounts by going back to look for him. Then another man mysteriously disappeared, the German Wolfinger, who was thought to be carrying a lot of money. 
having lost most of his team on a difficult stretch of Nevada desert, he had stayed behind to cash his belongings. Two single men, partners, also from Germany, stayed to help and returned in a few days with a story about how the Indians had killed Wolfinger and burned his outfit. But later, on his deathbed, one of them confessed to the murder. By the time it reached the meadows at the foot of the Sierra, the Donner Party was a party no more, but a straggling collection of individuals bound by family ties alone. There were only a dozen or so wagons left. The great crate of books that was to be the germ of Tamsin Donner's Girls' Academy had been cached in the Nevada desert. Loosely guarded, the cattle wandered away or were driven off by diggers, impoverished bands of desert Indians, most of them Paiutes. A gun went off by accident and a man was killed. William Eddy, who had lost all his stock, could find no one to take his children into a wagon. But then, at last, they had some encouragement. A pack train came loping down the trail out of the west. It was Stanton, returning from Sutter's Fort with seven pack mules loaded with food and with two of Sutter's Indian vaqueros to guide them. Here was hope for the first time in weeks. Food and word that Reed had gotten through, though he had nearly starved, and that McCutcheon had given out on the crossing and was laid up at Sutter's. Word, too, that the mountain passes were still open. Yes, there had been snow. They could see it on the peaks above them when the clouds gave way. But at this time of year, Stanton had been told, it would be nearly a month before the pass was blocked. So, they still had time, they told themselves. They could even afford to rest a few days in this grassy meadow before starting the push for the summit. How long it had been since they had seen grass so tall, so green. And having rested, they started in three small groups up the rugged canyon on the Truckee River and reached Truckee Lake now called Donner Lake, at the end of October. Just ahead loomed the summit, a wall of granite rising 2,000 feet above the lake. It was the worst obstacle on the whole grueling journey, not least because it came at the end, when men and animals were so worn down. Even the parties that had gone before in good time and in fair weather, had found the effort exhausting. As many as 15 yoke of oxen had to be used to pull a single wagon up the steep trail that led to the summit at Immigrant Gap. Every man was needed to handle the ropes and crowbars and to block the wheels. More than one wagon had gone over the side, but the job could be done and now the first group of the Donner Party began struggling up the slope. They found the pass already blanketed with five feet of snow, too deep for the wagons. They went back to the lake, waited out a day of rain, snow higher up, and started again, this time with their belongings 
packed on the backs of oxen. Stanton and one of Sutter's Indians made it to the summit. They could have gone down the western slope, but they turned back to help the others. The others were spent. They could not go on. They camped. They would go over the summit in the morning. But that night a snowstorm blew in, and they awoke to find themselves half-buried, the cattle gone, the snow too deep for them to move ahead. So again they turned back. Later, when the snow stopped, they could try again. The season was still early. The snow might still melt. Meantime, the men set to work building huts of logs and brush and canvas from the wagon tops. The lead group set up near the lake, while the Donner brothers, their families, and their teamsters went into camp five or six miles down the trail at Alder Creek. It snowed almost continuously for eight days. Reed and McCutcheon, leading a relief train of pack horses up the western slope, pushed through shoulder-deep snow until they could go no further and had to turn back. The Donner Party was on its own. It numbered 82 people now, many of them children, and they knew the worst. Winter had come early, and they were trapped. They could still hope that a relief party would reach them from Sutter's, but in the meantime, they would have to survive as best they could by eating their cattle and hunting. But who among them could have imagined that snow could get so deep? They were plains people, not mountaineers. They did not know what to expect of a winter in the Sierra. There in the high passes, 30 feet of snow has been known to fall in a month. By February, it can be packed 60 feet deep. Day by day, the weather grew colder and the snow grew deeper. The people killed most of the cattle, hoping that the snow and cold would preserve the meat. William Eddy, the party's one good shot, managed to bag a coyote with a borrowed rifle. Also an owl, two ducks, a squirrel, and then a grizzly bear. But after that, there was nothing. The deer and elk had descended below the snow line, and the bears were staying in their dens. Twice in November, those who were most able tried to get over the divide in hopes of saving themselves and their children and of bringing relief to the others. The second time, they actually got over and started down the other side. They had been using Sutter's mules to break a trail, however, and when the animals gave out, Stanton refused to go on without them. The mules were Captain Sutter's property. They must be returned. The party went back, and soon afterward, another storm broke. All the remaining cattle and horses were lost under the snow, and so were Sutter's mules. The huts, too, were buried, leaving only tunnels to the doorways and holes where the chimney stood. The light was shut out. Early in December, 
young Bayless Williams died. Not from starvation, for some food was left, but from malnutrition. A few days later, old Jacob Donner, who had dreamed of warm California, died and was buried in snow. Stanton and Uncle Billy Graves, who knew New England winters, showed the others how to make snowshoes. Thus equipped, a few perhaps could get out and get help. The Snowshoers, the party later known as the Forlorn Hope, started for the pass in mid-December. Fifteen men and women, including a boy of twelve, Stanton, Eddie, and Sutter's two Indians, who knew the trail. They took with them all the food that could be spared, two mouthfuls a day for six days, for a journey that was to last more than a month. They were weak from hunger before they even began. The snowshoes slowed them down. They got over the divide, though, and started down the western slope. The first to give out was Stanton. He had been in California once and had come back. He had made the attempt twice in November. But he was finished now. One morning, when the others were preparing to set out, he sat quietly smoking his pipe. Yes, he said. I am coming soon. The others went ahead. Stanton never rejoined them. By the day before Christmas, they had been laboring through snow at 8,000 feet for more than a week and had been without food for four days. Patrick Breen's friend Patrick Dolan was the first to speak what they all were thinking. They should draw lots, Dolan said, to see who should be killed. Some agreed. Others objected. William Eddy suggested that two of them, selected by lots, shoot it out with revolvers. Again, objections. Then it occurred to them, someone would die soon anyway. That night a blizzard engulfed them. Most of them were ready to die now. They would have died, except that Eddie remembered a mountain man's trick. He made them huddle together under the blankets until the snow covered them up and they were warm by the heat of their bodies. And there they stayed for two days. Delirium overtook many of them. They were raving and shrieking. When it was over, four were dead. Dolan, Uncle Billy, a Mexican herder named Antoine, and the boy, Lemuel Murphy. The survivors, crawling out of their mound, managed to strike a fire against a dead pine tree. They cut strips from the legs and arms of Patrick Dolan and roasted them. William, Eddie, and the Indians refused to eat. But after another day, they too gave in. The other bodies were butchered and the flesh dried at the fire for the journey ahead. Back at the huts below the divide, 
Christmas was nearly as grim. The refugees had not yet reached the final extreme. But five were dead, and many of the others were reduced to catching and eating the field mice that came burrowing into the huts. They had begun eating ox hides, which they first boiled into a thick glue, and some of them were easing the pains of hunger by chewing tree bark. At the lake camp, a little frozen meat was still left, and one woman had hoarded a few handfuls of flour from which she made a kind of gruel for the infant in her care. But probably none felt themselves more fortunate that Christmas than the four children of Mrs. Reed. For nearly eight weeks, their mother had kept hidden away the fixings for a holiday stew, which she now brought forth in all its meager glory. A mess of ox tripe, a cupful of white beans, a few dried apples, half a cup of rice, and a tiny square of bacon. Children, eat slowly, she warned. There is plenty for all. Across the divide, the snowshoers stumbled on. Ten of them now. The weather cleared and held, and the snow in places had finally crusted over enough for them to walk without their snowshoes. Eventually, they started to see patches of bare ground. But by then, the dried flesh was gone, and they were eating the rawhide of their snowshoes. The Indians! Kill the Indians! But William Eddy warned them, and they slipped away. It was the edge now. Even Eddie was failing. Spotting a deer, he hardly had the strength to lift the rifle to his shoulder. Uncle Billy's daughter, Mary Graves, stood by, weeping. But that night they ate venison and slept soundly. Another man died. They cut out his heart. His wife saw it roasted on a stick. Seven of them were left now. Five women and two men. One of them mad. William Foster pleaded with Eddie to kill one of the women. Pleaded until suddenly Eddie was at him with a knife. Threatening to kill him if he said it again. Days later, food gone, they came upon the two Indians, collapsed and dying. Eddie would not kill them, but left the gun for Foster. They ate again. Eddie ate only grass. By the end, they were crawling as much as they were walking. A small log in the path became a major obstacle. Their feet were bloody pulp. On January 12th, they stumbled into a poor Indian camp, were given acorn meal, and were helped on their way. They managed to go five days more before the last bit of strength was used up, and they lay down to die. Eddie alone, helped by two Indians, dragged himself the last six miles to Johnson's ranch, 
the first settlement on the edge of the Sacramento Valley. His bloody footprints marked the trail for those who would go to rescue his companions. It was two more weeks before the first relief party got underway. The American settlers in Northern California had just fought their last campaign against the Mexicans in the Mexican War, and it took time to raise enough volunteers. Incredibly, William Eddy, who was determined to rescue his wife and children, was among those who started from Johnson's Ranch on February 4th, and he got well up into the mountains before being sent back with the horses. The seven who continued on foot found the climb hard going, even though they were healthy and well-fed. Beset by violent rainstorms, fresh snow, and then a blizzard, they would have died if the storms had continued. But they came through it and crossed over the divide on February 18. When they dropped down to the snowy silence of the lake, they saw nothing but a level plain of snow. No smoke, no sign of life. In the stillness, they wondered if anyone was still alive. Until a shout brought a strange, half-human creature clawing its way up out of a hole. Then others appeared. Skinny and white they were, with staring eyes and tiny, lunatic voices. Still others were found under the snow, in their dark, reeking huts. The sick and the dying, who could not move from their beds. The bodies of those who had died since the last storm lay at the top of the ramps, the survivors having had strength to drag them up, but not to bury them. What had occurred at the camp during the two months since the forlorn hope had started for the pass was recorded in the nightmare memories of those who survived and in the diary of Patrick Breen. A spare chronicle of weather and death, of courage, meanness, faith, insanity. The indomitable Mrs. Reed, taking with her her daughter Virginia, Eliza Williams, and a teamster named Milt Elliott, had tried just after New Year's to get over the pass between storms and had to turn back. I could get along very well while I thought we were going ahead, Virginia later recalled, but as soon as we had to turn back, I could hardly walk. Keysburg's child had died, and William Eddy's daughter, and a man named Spitzer, and Eddy's wife, and Milt Elliott. Keysburg had stayed in bed, hoarding valuables that were not his. Eliza Williams' mind had dimmed. She was an infant now. At Alder Creek, George Donner lay dying, and Tamsin would not leave his side to go with the relief party. She had come with her husband this far, had followed him despite his stubborn insistence on taking Hastings' word when all wisdom went against it. She would not abandon him now, nor would Jacob's wife Elizabeth leave her youngest children or the body of her husband. The rescuers chose the four strongest of the Donner children, and the women dressed them in the good heavy clothes that had been packed from the previous spring on the Sangamon. The others would have to wait for the next relief party, 
which was expected in a few days. 23 started out with the first relief, including all of the reeds. But Tommy and his eight-year-old sister Patty had to be sent back. They were too weak, too slow. They were endangering the whole party. Well, Mother, Patty said, if you never see me again, do the best you can. James Reed, leading the second relief up the western slopes, met his wife and two children coming down. On March 1st, he arrived at the lake camp, where he found his Tommy and Patty still alive. But Reed had come too late to spare the survivors the final horror. Bones were scattered about, tufts of human hair, half-consumed limbs. Reed recognized the bearded head of his friend Jacob Donner lying in the snow. The skull opened. Inside the Donner hut, he found Jacob's remaining children devouring the half-roasted heart and liver of their father. Elizabeth was dying. She would not eat the food she had prepared for her children. Reed led her and the children and 14 others back down the mountain. William Eddy and William Foster, who had fought viciously in the snow two months before, led the third relief over the divide in March. They discovered that their sons had died and heard the now deranged Kiesberg tell them he had eaten the two boys. George Donner, they found, was somehow still alive. Tamsin wrapped her three remaining children in warm clothes and bade them goodbye. Her body had stood her well. She was still in good strength. She would stay to care for her husband and to close his eyes when he died. Foster's mother-in-law, aged and dying, would have to stay. She was too far gone to travel. So, it seemed, was Keysburg. It was the end of April before the last survivor was brought down from the mountains. The final party of rescuers found only carnage at Donner Lake and Donner Creek, as the campsites were soon being called. Carnage and the demented Keysburg. He was lying down, one of the rescuers remembered, amidst the human bones, and beside him, a large pan full of fresh liver and lights. At the creek, the relief party had found a kettle full of pieces of the body of George Donner. Nearby on a chair were ox legs, which had been perfectly preserved in the now melting snow, but which had not been eaten. Why, they asked Keysburg, had he not used the meat of the bullock instead of human flesh? Oh, it's too dry eating, he'd answered. And what of Tamsin, who had been in such good health just three weeks before? The party could find no trace of her body. But they believed that Keysburg had killed her. He denied it for the rest of his life. After George Donner died, Keysburg maintained, she had come to the lake in delirium 
Kiesberg said he had warmed her and put her to bed, and the next morning had found her dead. But he also told the rescuers that he ate her body and found her flesh the best he had ever tasted. He further stated that he obtained from her body at least four pounds of fat. When the Donner Party reached the Sierra, it had included 82 people, five having died on the way there. Thirty-five died in the mountains, along with the two Indians who had come to rescue them. As Bernard DeVoto points out in his classic Year of Decision, 1846, the party had shared the common chance of the immigrant trail, and the common chance turned against them. But chance alone is not enough to explain that disastrous combination of events, personalities, and interests that overwhelmed them. Chance was one factor. But so was the ambition of Lansford Hastings, the business enterprise of Jim Bridger, the cumbersome prosperity of the Donner Wagons, the obstinate temper of Reed, the early winter, the tardiness of the relief parties. Perhaps, even so little a thing as James Clyman's grubby looks. Among the 47 survivors, there were not many who came through without being haunted for the rest of their lives by the memories of what they had had to endure. The sight of a rising moon forever reminded Mrs. Foster of that moonlit night in the mountains when her companions in the forlorn hope set to work on the body of Patrick Dolan while her brother Lemuel Murphy lay dead in her arms. Eliza Donner never forgot how she had eaten the bark of trees to ease the pain in her stomach. For the most part, the survivors settled into blessedly ordinary lives. Fourteen-year-old Virginia Reed, for one, received a marriage proposal even before she reached Sutter's Fort. Tell the girls that this is the greatest place for Maine they ever saw. She rode home to Illinois. Keysburg, for a time, reveled in his notoriety, finding an audience for his ghoulish tales in the bars of Gold Rush, San Francisco. Until the town grew more respectable, and he sometimes found himself taunted and stoned when he stepped outside his house. And then there was Lansford Hastings, whom William Eddy set out one day to kill. But Eddy was dissuaded by a friend from carrying out his plan. The Ohio schemer lived on, forever optimistic, chasing one elusive dream after another. During the Civil War, he went to Richmond with a plan for seizing Arizona and Southern California for the Confederacy. But nothing came of it. Later, he tried to establish a colony in Brazil for ex-Confederate soldiers. To forward his scheme, he even published An Immigrant's Guide to South America. But in 1870, before his plans were well underway, he died of a tropical disease. Not for him a cold winter death. Starvation in the snow. To learn more about the Donner Party's tragic story, you might check out some books still in print, including Desperate Passage, The Donner Party's Perilous Journey West, 
by Ethan Rarick. Or, The Best Land Under Heaven, The Donner Party in the Age of Manifest Destiny, by Michael Wallace. You might also watch the excellent documentary and a personal favorite, The Donner Party, a film by Rick Burns. It's available for purchase at shop.pbs.org. Or, you can purchase or rent the streaming version at Amazon.com. If you would like to read the magazine article from which this podcast episode was sourced, go to AmericanHeritage.com and search Winter Kill 1846 by Thomas Franchik from the December 1976 issue. New episodes of Narratives at Night will be released every month on various platforms, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you really like this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five-star rating and help the podcast grow its listenership. To hear more samples of my work, go to voiceswithmike.com. Have a great evening.